My uh, sermon title today is, Can You Show Some Identification? Do not be alarmed, you're not being pulled over right now. This past week, as we talked about, Alicia Pratt followed Jesus into the waters of baptism, declaring her love and devotion and her commitment to Jesus Christ, her Savior, in front of family and her best friend. And as, we, as the weeks went on, we talked about baptism and what it meant. We read in the book of Romans, and I reread this on the day of her baptism as well. In the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 3, it says, Do you not know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus? We were baptized into his death. See, the Bible teaches a believer's baptism through immersion, which demonstrates how we identify with Christ's death during baptism. Certainly a baptism is a day of celebration to get baptized because we're following the, the command from the Word of God. We are told to baptize, be baptized and to baptize other believers and disciples. Yet the truth of baptism shows our identification and the sacrifice that Jesus made for us to give us eternal life. As a believer stands upright in the water, she identifies with Jesus as he hung on the cross. Romans 6, verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. When the believer then is immersed in the water, she identifies with Jesus, just as he was died and buried, knowing that he paid the ultimate price for our sins. Believing in this personal sacrifice, we too believe that our sins die, or the consequences of our sins, the, the, the condemnation of our sins is dead. It can no longer, sin no longer holds a, a bondage over a believer. There's no bondage of condemnation. Jesus died for our sins. When we are baptized, we recognize that we're, we are dead to our sins, or at least the control of condemnation over our lives from sins. Our sins have been paid in full so that we are no longer in bondage. Now we serve a new master. That master is Jesus Christ. Amen? Romans 6, verse 5. If we have been united with him in this death, we certainly also will be united with him in his resurrection. So when the believer, during the baptism, when a believer comes up out of the water and stands up again, the identification is that Jesus rose from the dead. The condemnation of the sin stays dead, but we rise into new life, not in our own power, but in the grace of God. Romans 6, verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. See, because we are human and we've not yet been glorified in our bodies, we still sin from time to time, but we are no longer slaves to condemnation and the power of sin. We have been set free from the law of sin and death and have been given new life by the Spirit of God. Thus, baptism symbolizes this new life as we freely follow Jesus into the water of baptism in front of others. Thus, when we are baptized, we identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
For baptism is an outward symbol of what Jesus has already done on the inside of a believer. Baptism does not save you. Jesus saves you. But Jesus commanded us to not be afraid, to not be ashamed, and so we are baptized in front of others to identify with his death and crucifixion and resurrection. But as we go forward in our Christian walks, we must find new ways to identify with Christ. For baptism is a one-time event. We don't keep getting baptized to say we keep identifying with Christ. So we need to find new ways to identify with him. So let me ask you, how do you identify with Christ? In other words, how could a complete stranger identify you as one who follows Christ? You might say, All right, that's easy. I got a cross pendant on my neck on my necklace that shows I'm a Christian, or I got a Christian tattoo. Well, understand there's people around the world that don't have those things and they are still Christians. Well, you might say, you know, hold on, I attend church every Sunday or whenever I can. I sometimes even attend during the week as well. However, for many people, church is not an option. It's not accessible in countries where it's against law to be a Christian. And yet there are still many Christians that don't attend church. Well, you might say it's because I read my Bible. However, there are some who have no access to a Bible. That's why we invest in missions around the world. But the truth is there's many believers that have no Bible, not, not even a single Bible in an entire village or entire area. And yet there are still Christians. So I ask again, how will others identify you as a Christian? Well, we've learned to look in the Bible for instruction. And we're going to see that our very lives that we live each and every day should show our identification with Christ. I want to begin in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... See, we begin with that word, if. If denotes that it's a conditional statement. So we must know what's meant by the consolation of Christ. When I, a long time ago, I, whenever I think of that word, I think of the game show game shows, and if you didn't get the final price, they, well, we give you a consolation prize. All right? Here's your consolation prize. That's not what that word means. So when I preach, I usually preach from the New King James Version. That's just how I was kind of taught and raised due to its accuracy to the original text and its ability to be understood. But there's lots of other versions of the Bible that can help us understand different parts of Scripture. One such different version is called the Amplified Bible. And it gives the full meaning of words and phrases in their original form. So I want to take a look at this verse in the Amplified Version, Philippians 2, verse 1. It says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement and comfort in Christ, as there certainly is in abundance, would you agree? If there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship that we share in the Spirit, if there is any great depth of affection and compassion. In other words, if you have received the love of Christ who encourages, who comforts, who consoles, who demonstrates His affection and compassion through His words to your very soul, then you understand the first step about how Jesus identifies with us. 
but there's a part that we play to to complete the identification process. It's how we respond to that understanding of his love. It's how we apply that understanding to others as well. That completes the identification process. You see, true believers do not follow Christ out of obligation. I know when I was younger, and maybe you have this similar, my my parents did what was right, and they trained us up in the Lord so that when we were older, we would not depart from it. And so I was dragged to church every Sunday. I don't know if anybody else was. But we always got dragged late, and we had to sit in the front row because no one else wanted to sit there, and so everyone could see my parents dragging us to church. So when I was younger, I served God out of obligation. But then there came a time in my life when I realized that Jesus Christ died for me and he loved me how I was, full of sin and full of all these faults and stuff. And Jesus loved me and he wanted me to make me more like him. And I fell in love with Jesus. And I've been following him with my heart now. But true believers don't follow out of obligation. They also don't follow him simply to avoid the wrath to come. They don't follow, true believers don't follow just to make their parents proud. They don't follow him simply because of a logical defense of the gospel made sense in their minds. True believers have received the powerful love of Jesus. They have been forgiven by a most gracious God, especially when so many times we look at ourselves and we can't even forgive ourselves. And then we understand that Jesus died for me and you. And when you understand that Jesus forgives you, that's a, that's a God that you want to follow. Amen. True believers have their, know that their chains of condemnation have been broken, have been severed by the power of His shed blood. True believers have been comforted by the very presence of God in their times of grief. They have been strengthened by the power of His living word, speaking exactly what they need to hear to their, in their lives. We pray this prayer every, every Sunday. We pray the Lord's Prayer. And yet there's such a powerful promise that says, give me today my daily bread. God, give me what I need to hear. You know what I need. And true believers have received that daily bread, that, that, that word right into our spirit. And be, because these statements are true for true believers, they can identify with Christ at a level where they are willingly, they willingly lay down their pride. They don't care what anyone else thinks. They don't care what someone may mock or say of us, but they willingly lay down their pride. They lay down their agenda and their doubts so they can choose to follow Jesus on a daily basis. Thus, Paul continues by stating that if you can identify with this love of Christ, Then, Philippians 2, verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded and having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. See, that coming together, that union, is not just because of a movement or of a doctrine or following the same teaching. What brings us together in unity is having the same love. Paul, an apostle of the Lord, shares the way that we fulfill his joy as an ambassador of Christ is by being like-minded. It means we have the same love for our brothers and sisters in the Lord, that we are of one accord and one mind. 
People think, how can we come together with so many different churches and so many different denominations and so many different beliefs? It's not about that. The way we come together is, is by having the same love for one another. That's what the Bible states. That's why God implores us to connect with other believers. Across denominational lines, denominations are man-made, not God-made. God made love. And he said if we can come together in that same love, that's what unites us. What does it mean to have the same love of Christ? I'll tell you, that's much easier said than done. For the simple fact that we are all humans and we all have a sinful nature inside of us. By nature, our flesh, our sinful flesh or our nature, seeks to comfort itself. It seeks to appease itself. It seeks to satisfy its urgings, even at the expense of others at times. The only way to have the same love of Christ is to deny our flesh and learn to walk by the Spirit. This, after all, is what Jesus instructed all of those to do if they truly desired to follow him. Listen to these words of Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then Jesus said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. That's the very first step. The very first step is to deny yourself what you think you should do, what you think you deserve, what rights you think you have. The very first step, and Tony and I, we step over that. The very first step is I need to deny myself. Let him take up his cross daily. You don't just become baptized and say, I have my ticket punched to heaven and live life however you want. It's a daily choice to identify with the Lord. To pick up our cross, which means it's going to be a challenge. Deny, let him deny himself, let him pick up his cross daily and follow me. Far too often we read or hear of Christ's love at weddings. We read the, the chapter on love in the Bible at a wedding or on, we see it on Valentine's Day. And we simply think that anybody who wants to show love to others, that anybody is capable of reaching these ideals of love if they just put a lot of hard work into it and they just really commit and devote themselves to that. Yet the love of Christ can only be realized and demonstrated if we first deny ourselves. And then we have to ask the Holy Spirit to direct our thoughts and to convict our actions and to keep us attentive to his voice throughout the day. We know that love, you guys have heard this before, but we know that love is patient and love is... There you go, we already know that one, right? Love is patient, love is kind. Can you, can you quote that entire four verses? Love is patient, love is kind. We already know that. We know it's not proud and we know it's not rude. But when you go further into these verses, you come to the realization that it's impossible to have this same love until we completely deny ourselves. The truth is that many people are truly not willing to deny themselves to have the same love of Christ. And yet, if we don't have that same love, we cannot come together as a body across the world. You heard us in that opening song saying about how believers are all over the world singing in different ways. That's the beauty of the body today and all over the world people are singing. But it has to extend beyond Sunday in church. It has to extend in our daily lives, coming together, seeking to have that same life if we are willing to deny ourselves. 
Jesus tells us that unless we lay down our will and our agenda and our flesh's desires, then what he says is we're not truly following him. In fact, it's pretty stark what he says in the next verse. Luke 9.24, he says this, For whoever desires to save his life, which means you're not willing to deny yourself, whoever truly desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In other words, if we are more concerned about our flesh's desires for life in this world, seeking the praises of others and the affection of others and the the adulation of others, we seek it so much that we actually reject the words of Jesus, then do we have the life that Jesus promised us? You see, just because you wear a cross pendant or go to church does not make you a Christian. If you want to follow Jesus, then you need to follow his commands. Otherwise, you're just out for a walk. Following a mixture of the world's voices and the world's thoughts and your your logic and the desires of your flesh. I will tell you that that does not amount to a hill of beans on the scales of eternity. So how do we know if we are sincere in denying ourselves to follow Jesus? I want to give you one verse to use as a test for your authenticity or your commitment to Jesus. So how do you know? I think I'm following Jesus. I, 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 I do these things. And I'm, I'm learning, but how do I know? Well, 1 Corinthians 13, a little deeper in that love chapter, says this. It's four powerful truths. Love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Now, I can tell you in your own strength, no matter how good you think you are, you cannot do this on your own. How many have tried to do it on your own and failed? Right? Absolutely. So that's why we need Jesus to fill us and to rejuvenate us and to regenerate our spirits so that we can do these things. But it still takes effort on our part. The first one says, love does not dishonor others. In everything you do, let me ask you a question. In everything you do, are you careful not to dishonor others? When you're having a discussion or an argument in your talk, when you support your argument, do you take care not to put down others? Or do you feel you have to put them down to elevate your position? We know from the political discourse in our country today and anyone who's pulled into these earthly arguments, that the dishonoring of others happens all the time. There used to be a time when you could disagree with someone in principle without dishonoring them and assaulting their character. But that's a rare quality in today's discussion. I remember when I was in high school, and I was playing around with one of my friends. He happened to be my locker partner. And we were throwing a basketball around at lunchtime, and I threw it without seeing where it was going. I hit him right in the nose. He said, I'm going to challenge you to a fight. So all day, throughout the whole day of school, it's going to be a big fight. It's going to be a big fight. And all of a sudden, there's this big crowd following us, and we left. Let's go down to these trails, Boy Scout trails. I don't know if you know where that's at, Bob, off the Bobish. But we went down to the trails, and we probably had 40 people following us waiting for this big fight. 
We got out there, and he took a swung at me, and I got a bloody nose. I took a swung at him, and I tackled him. And all of a sudden, the, this farmer that whose land was on came running out. He said, oh, no, take off. And the farmer got there. He said, I just wanted to watch. <laughs> Anyways, we went back. We got down. We went to his house. We cleaned up. We played basketball together. Like we had a fight, we got out, and we and 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 it ended at that. And he was still a, still a good friend throughout all of high school. For whatever reason, because the because Christ is not in us and, and in so many people today, people do not know how to disagree. I'm not in, and not I'm not encouraging you to go fight with somebody, but uh, but I'm saying that there used to be a time when you could disagree very strongly and still be friends with some or still respect one another. But but it's showing us more and more that people are not are not honoring others. They are dishonoring others all the time. Less and less people are denying their flesh. They're not submitting to the Holy Spirit to convict their hearts, to tame their tongues, and to control their actions. Yet this is the kind of demonstrated love that shows our identification with Christ. Can you Show some identification with Christ and how you honor others in all your conversations. If not, then it should be a goal for you to start to honor others in your conversations. Second part part of the scripture says that could you say that you're that you're not motivated by self seeking interests? Could you honest, honestly state that? You're not after the praises of others. You're not looking for the praises or adulation or the thanks of others or the appreciation for the things that you do. A lot of people believe that they truly are not self-seeking in nature. And they believe it's really not a big deal to them. But there's a surefire way to tell if you really are accurately assessing your your willingness to not be a self-seeker, to not look for those things. The way you assess your propensity to self-seeking pursuits is to examine how you feel and how you react and how you respond when the opposite happens to you. In other words, when you don't get the credit that you think you deserve. Or, even worse, when someone blames you for something that you think you didn't do or someone accuses you for something that you didn't do. How do you respond when that happens? If you are rejected and blamed by others. Do you feel wounded or do you feel mortally wounded, like they did it on purpose and they're trying to push you down? Does it completely dominate your thought patterns for days or weeks or months? Does it force you to lash out at others? Now, it's natural to feel disappointed and even temporarily upset when we're rejected or blamed, but a prolonged dwelling on the rejection from others often shows that we care more about what others think of us instead of the truth of how God sees us. Listen, Jesus himself was not moved by the praises of man. They wanted to worship him, and Jesus said, only one is good, that's my Father in heaven. Worship him. He was not moved by the praises of man, and therefore he was not moved by the rejection of men either. When we seek to honor God in all that we do and say and think, when we put others' needs above our own, we trust that God will take care of us. It's not in my slideshow PowerPoint, but there's a powerful truth that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 6. He, asked, he told us that we're to seek first the kingdom of God 
And then all the things that we've been seeking will be added to us, that God will take care of us as long as we take care of his kingdom, which means other people. God asks us to not be self-seeking because when we do that, what we're saying is, God, you will not and you cannot meet my needs if I take care of yours. To have the same love of Christ, we take care of the kingdom of other people, and we love people and forgive them and pray for them, and we believe that God will take care of our needs. If we truly have the same love of Christ, we'll be seeking after the kingdom of God and also seeking to have an unoffendable heart. Can you show some identification with Christ by the ideals and the motivations after which you seek? The third part of this verse is that love is not easily angered. In dealing with others, especially when things are unfair, they don't go your way. How would you describe your patience or self-control? How easily are you angered in situations like these? It sure seems that there's a growing majority of people who are disabled in their ability to handle adversity. As biblical principles are no longer taught in most schools today, and biblical principles are no longer taught in many homes today, parents are producing more and more children who simply cannot problem-solve on their own. It used to be that overprotective parents, now I've been in the schools, I'm, praise God, I'm retired now. I almost forgot. But it used to be, and I've been around parents and kids because I've been in junior high, that's what God called me most of my career. But it used to be that overprotective parents were, overprotective parents were called helicopter parents. Did you ever hear that before? It meant that they were so involved in their kids' lives that they would hover over everything that happened to them to make sure they didn't get hurt too much or get into too much trouble. But in their rationale for trying to protect their children, they destroy any trust building that's necessary with their kids. Additionally, they rob their children of the experience of handling adversity and making real-life decisions that may aid them in the future. But it gets worse than that. You may have heard of helicopter parents, but what's happened nowadays is that generation of parents, that overprotective parents, are now, are now known as lawnmower parents. What is a lawnmower parent? It means as soon as they see a potential speed bump down the road a ways, they, they don't want their kids to suffer at all, so they mow down that problem. What happens is they badmouth teachers. How dare you give my kid less than an A? How dare you accuse my kid of being anything but perfect? That happens all the time. They fight to make sure their kids are not punished for anything they did at school. They pull their kids from little league teams if they're not playing enough. Instead of learning them to, to, to accept adversity as part of the natural course of life. By their actions, they're telling their kids that things should always go your way. And nothing unfair should ever happen to you. I don't know about you, but was it unfair that Jesus died on the cross? Yeah, it was. But he did it willingly to open up heaven for us. As a result, these parents raise kids who are very easily angered as adults when things don't go their way and their mom and dad are not there to bail them out. I don't know about you, but I learned a lot from the mistakes that I made as a child and teenager. Can anybody relate to that? My parents guided me into a discovery of life lessons. 
but also they were wise enough to allow me to feel the pain of my actions from bad choices that I made so that I would not repeat them in the future. What it did for me and for many of us is that it taught us that adversity is a common part of life. Not only is it common, adversity is a necessary part of life. Things won't always go your way. Unfair things will happen to us. Just knowing this allows us to not get so upset every time that something doesn't go as planned. But this is not simply the evolution of bad parenting. Rather, it's the result of kids not being raised with biblical principles. James 1, verse 2. I know this is a lot of your favorite verse, right? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. This is in the Bible. That we are to consider it joy because why? Not because of what's happened to us, but what but because of what Christ is going to produce in us and through us as we trust Him through the trials that we face. Biblically speaking, trials and challenges are allowed in our lives to teach us and cause us to become more like Jesus. Verse 3 and 4, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You wonder why people can't get along these days? Why they have to argue and vent and slander one another and accuse one another and fight and all the violence? It's because they've not learned that adversity is allowed in our lives to make us complete. There's a bunch of incomplete people who have not been willing to go through the adversity to become more like Christ. We are taught in the Word of God the value of trials of many kinds. We learn to appreciate adversity because from it we develop faith and patience and perseverance. Without adversity, we are incomplete. And when we are incomplete in our development, we are also incomplete in the tools that are available to us to make it through difficult times as we go through life. Thus, we have whole generations of people now that have no self-control, no respect for challenges, no appreciation of hard work, and no ability to deal with others. Again, why? It's because biblical principles are not being taught in too many places. The more people stray away from the complete teachings of the Bible and only cherry-pick fluff that backs up their human points, the further people wander away from the road that Christianity was meant to take us. Listen, the love of Christ is not easily angered. It has complete control of emotional reactions. It is completely submitted to the Holy Spirit. So when you're angry, take it to God. God gave you anger to let you know if your needs have been met or not. God can handle your anger. As we submit to the Holy Spirit, we're able to step out of tempting situations without losing our cool. But because of the grace of God, when we, when we do and we go to Him, God forgives us and restores us. The love of Christ is able to trust that Jesus can lead you out of any situation if you take time to submit to Him. He can lead you out of any argument and any trap where, the, where your flesh is trying to pull bad thoughts out of you. How about you?
Can you show some identification with Christ by the way you handle adversity? Finally, number four. When dealing with others, especially those who have a history, those you have a history with, is your forgiveness of their faults genuine? Or do you keep a record of wrongs? Now remember, this says the love of Christ keeps no record of wrongs. You cannot do this on your own, but it has to come with, with dealing with forgiveness. Many people will say that they've forgiven a spouse or they've forgiven a child or a friend. But as soon as they make a bad choice or a mistake, that old memory is brought up again. Keeping a record of wrongs demonstrates that you don't really believe in the power of the blood of Jesus to forgive and to help you to forgive others. Bringing up past hurts and offenses that were already forgiven demonstrates a passive-aggressive nature that is given to manipulation and keeping other people in constant fear of your unpredictable control or approval. This is not the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated. When he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing, while they were killing him, he truly forgave the people who killed him. He didn't bring it back up again. When we forgive someone, we're not supposed to bring it back up again. Listen, 30 years ago, in fact, this August 1st will be Nancy and I's and mine, 30th wedding anniversary and it's, we've been through a lot and I remember as she does a little more than 30 years ago before we got married we went around to ask people can you give us some advice on marriage people had their own thoughts but we'll, we'll always remember this older couple in Burger King down in Lansing and this, old, this older lady leaned over to us she said I'll give you two things number one keep the Lord first alright Number two, when you fight, get it all out at once because two black eyes heal as quick as one. That's some wisdom. You know what it means? And so when someone offends you and hurts you, get it all out. Don't hold some back and get it all out and take care of them. Later when something happens, you bring that, that ammo back in again. Well, how come you didn't say that before? Because it's our flesh. And so how we, we are not to keep record of wrongs. We get it all out. We deal with it. Forgive it. Then listen, you know what happens is when we forgive it, it comes under the blood of Jesus. Because Jesus died to forgive us of our sins. We have no right to take something that's under the blood and take it back out. If it's been forgiven, it's under the blood. It's got to stay there. That's what the love of Jesus does. It keeps no record of wrongs. We are asked to come to be more like Him but it's going to take effort on our part. Can you show some identification by how you forgive others and refuse to keep a record of wrongs? Remember, next time you want to pull that back out and you've already forgiven someone, let, I pray that you would be convicted that it's under the blood. You don't have any right to take out what's under the blood to use it again. It's been forgiven. This is how the Bible teaches us to demonstrate that we are following Jesus. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's how we identify with Christ. In verse 5, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. 
You see, if we can't come into that same love, we can't be united. And if we can't be united, we can't answer Jesus' prayer in the garden when he said, Father, may they all be one. We have the ability and the opportunity to answer a prayer of Jesus to come together. And if you're ever having a hard time forgiving someone else or believing that you can do it, that we need only to go back to the cross. For it's at the cross where we've been given life. I'm going to take a moment right now on this last song and help us to understand the sacrifice that was made for us so that we could receive perfect love and extend it to others as well.
Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for the truth of that song, Lord God. The truth of what you did for us. It pales in comparison for the things that we are holding on. Lord God, forgive us for not being willing to fully walk through forgiveness. Forgive us for taking things out of the blood that have been dead and gone. Forgive us, Lord God, for not honoring others or for self-seeking or for being easily angered. Lord God, help us to identify with Christ and what happened at the cross. The most unfair thing that ever happened, and yet you did it freely for us. Lord God, as we even today afresh receive that forgiveness for what we have done, the sins that we've committed, by your power of the Spirit and by your grace, help us extend that to others, to love others the same way that you loved us. Lord God, we thank you for the power of the cross as we identify with you this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.